the, um, the last week that I'll be teaching. And all God's people said, <laughs> amen. Um, I didn't get through everything I wanted to do last week, so kind of the, what would have been the climax last week now becomes the introduction this week, um, and then also kind of a springboard to the last resource I've used, that is this final book, a uh, very new book from last year called Tempted and Tried by Russell Moore. Uh, this focuses on Jesus' temptations, and I found it to be helpful uh, hopefully today, as kind of a case study or an example of the way that Jesus resisted his temptations in the desert. So we'll talk about um, the actual true work of mortification as we start out this morning, um, and then we will go to the specific example of Jesus in the desert. So let me pray for us, uh, and we'll begin. Father in heaven, Lord, again, we thank you that you um, are a gracious God, and you're slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, Father, and we need your grace uh, today as we do every day. Father, we seek um, to be edified and taught by your word today. We pray that it would be um, beneficial for us, and that you would use your truth to sanctify us, and Lord, help us to be humble this morning. Father, help me to be hum humble in the way that I am presenting your word. And I just pray that it would have a good effect in our hearts and that you would be glorified in it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Is anyone lacking a note sheet? James has some. If, you, if you're lacking one, raise a hand and he'll find you. Otherwise, um, the first part of our notes, there's quite a few verses that I want us to look at. And so I would ask, um, as I, I'm going to call them all out here at the beginning, I'm going to get volunteers for them, and you just remember when your verse is about to come up, so maybe we won't have kind of a, a lag of people maybe not wanting to read. So let me just run through real quick. Who'd like to do 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 9? Ken? Okay. And uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 9. We're just, I'm going in order on the note sheet here. And then Matthew 11, 28 through 30. Matt Scheffler, okay, and then Hebrews, he'll do the two passages in Hebrews. In the back, Alex. And then 2 Corinthians 5.21, Chuck. And then I'll do the Titus. And then John 16.8, Bradley. And then Tim, you want to do 2 Thessalonians 2.13? And then Romans 8, James. Thank you. Okay, so my first volunteer was Ken, I believe. But before you read the scripture, let me give you the first blank there. When we talk about the work of mortification, we've been doing kind of lots of preparation work the last two weeks, learning about our flesh and dwelling sin, the way that it impacts our hearts, the way that our flesh can deceive us, ways that we should be better obedient servants for God. We've learned lots of prep work leading up to mortification, so now we're finally going to see what really is it. Number one, mortification is, first of all, setting your faith on Jesus. Set your faith on Jesus for the killing of your sin. Set your faith on Jesus 
for the killing of your sin. And we'll look at several reasons why we're able to do this. So set your faith on Jesus for the killing of your sin. Ken, go right ahead. Thank you, Ken. So letter A, why are we able to set our faith on Christ? First of all, because His grace is sufficient. We know this to be true, but we would do well to remind ourselves that we can place our faith in Him because His grace is sufficient. Paul found this to be true. He pleaded with God to take this thorn away, but the Lord was pleased to have it keep afflicting Paul but to tell him, even though you are afflicted, my grace is still sufficient for you. And that's the same for us. When we're faced with temptation, God's grace is sufficient in every circumstance. Matt, you want to read Matthew 11? Yes, another reason why we can set our faith on Christ is because Jesus freely gives relief. He freely gives relief. I think if ever there was an uh, encouraging invitation in Scripture, when Jesus calls out to us asking us to do something, for me this is it, when he says, come to me, those who are weary and burdened. And I think that we could all agree that oftentimes our sin is very wearying. Our sin is very burdensome. And that would be a wonderful occasion to go to Christ so that He might allow us to mortify sin. He freely gives relief. Alex, you have the Hebrews passages? Just read them one after the other. Thank you. So another reason why we can place our faith in Christ is because He is our merciful High Priest. Scripture says He was made like His brethren in every way. And who are His brethren? That includes us. He was made like us in every way, yet He was still without sin. That's what qualifies Him to be our High Priest, isn't it? To go before God on our behalf. He is our merciful High Priest. We approach Him with confidence because He can give grace and mercy in our time of need. 
Then letter D, Chuck, you had 2 Corinthians 5.21. Thank you. And then I'll read Titus 2, 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. And this is the thing to remember that kind of undergirds all of this, is that the only reason that we would ever be able to mortify sin, to kill sin, is because Jesus was killed on the cross. The gospel is the key. That's the final blank, letter D. The gospel is key. That's what enables us to place our faith in Christ. He was crucified, and that's what enables us to crucify our own sin. And that's what it says in Titus, that, I'm sorry, and um, right, right here, to, uh, this is the reason salvation has come. Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. It all has to do with our sanctification. The reason that he was killed. So that we might be made like him. So that's number one. We set our faith on Christ for the killing of our sin. Number two, the second actual work of mortification is something that we must remember. This is not so much a concrete action, but it's something we have to remember. We remember that the Spirit is the one that works in us to mortify sin. Remember that the Spirit works in us to mortify sin. Bradley, you had John 16.8? Right, Jesus telling about what the Spirit actually does. One of his activities is to convict our hearts of sin. We, I don't think as believers we would ever truly be convicted of our sin if it was not for the Spirit dwelling in us. So the Spirit convicts of sin. This letter A. Tim, you had Second Thessalonians 2.13. That's right. So he's chosen us for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit. It all is because the Spirit is the one in our hearts doing the work. That letter B there is the Spirit. This is kind of a long answer perhaps for that line. But the Spirit applies Christ's atoning work to our hearts. The Spirit applies Christ's atoning work to our hearts. We have to remember that when we're battling sin, it's not really battled in flesh and bone, is it? It's battled in the spiritual realm, and that's why it's critical that we're relying on the Spirit to do the work in us. And then who had the Romans passage? James. Right. 
Have you ever found that when you're faced with the same temptation over and over again, you've seen it well up in your heart time after time, and you begin to wonder, Lord, how many different ways can I pray that you would help me in this situation? Sometimes we just probably don't have the words. To me, this is very encouraging to know that the Spirit intercedes for us in ways that we can't even express. We don't even have the words to pray. We should, should be encouraged that the Spirit is there interceding for us in ways that we can't even understand. So we set our faith on Christ for the killing of our sin. We remember that the Spirit works in us. And sometimes you still might wonder, well, you know, those look very good on paper. And I think they work very good in practice too. But we still might wonder, well, is there a little bit more encouragement we might still have looking at this? I think just the next couple of verses right after that in Romans 8 help us be encouraged because it says, starting in verse 29, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, those he also called. And whom he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. So what is it saying? It's saying that those of us that have been called and justified, those of us that are in Christ, that God will be working to make us into the image of his Son. Though our flesh is always within us, warring against us, the, set, the Spirit setting itself against the flesh, we can, I think, be encouraged here that if we're in Christ, that God will be faithful be working on us to make us more like his son. And that's the work that he's doing. Now we cooperate. There's work for us to do. We have to work very hard to mortify our sin, but it truly is the Spirit's work in us according to the Father's will. Does that make sense? So, if that is kind of the end of where we were going with this first book we are looking at, The Mortification of Sin, those are the two works, mortifying or setting your faith on Jesus and remembering the Spirit works in us. It seemed kind of on my third week here appropriate to look at an example, a very good example, of how Jesus in Scripture was victorious over his sin. The rest of our time will be in Matthew chapter 4. We can all turn there together. And I'll just read the first four verses, Matthew chapter 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted forty days and forty nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth. God. Now it's not really surprising at all, I don't think, that the first temptation would have to do with Satan offering Jesus food. The scripture clearly says he was hungry, and certainly he must have been hungry. Probably a hunger that none of us might ever know. Forty days in the wilderness by himself. Now some of us may have fasted for some short period of time, perhaps. 
And I've heard of people occasionally doing a 40-day fast. I can't quite imagine what that would really be like, especially if you're in the desert. The heat, the exposure, the wind, the sun, the rocks. I mean, can you, is there even a place to lay down comfortably at night? And even if you do fall asleep in the middle of the night, is there not in the back of your mind wondering, is some wild beast going to wake me up, his hot breath right next to me, waiting to devour me? I, no, I mean, I think that we have to understand that Jesus' life, really, we know that obviously he was ordained to survive this ordeal, but any one of us would have to agree that anyone in the situation was really in grave danger, I think. So Satan appears to offer Jesus some bread. We know that Jesus was hungry. And so Satan was tempting Jesus with, I would say, letter A. You could say it several different ways. Provision, really self-provision, or consumption, to consume something. It would satisfy his appetites. So he was tempting him with provision. And letter B, I think it's really a question of appetite. And this is where I think it could become interesting for us to think about our own appetites. Because we know that we all have appetites, right? Our appetites aren't bad necessarily. It wasn't bad that Jesus was hungry. It's not bad when we're hungry. But our appetites, I think, are really there for a reason to show us that we need things. You know, We need to sleep. We need to eat. We need to drink. There's plenty of things our bodies need to do to function. But it's, it's more than that, isn't it? I think Russell Moore makes an interesting observation about our appetites. Can you imagine looking at your appetites like this, thinking to yourself, my fat reserves are now alarmingly low, so I must eat food for sustenance. Or, based on my calculations, my hydration levels are below the acceptable minimum, so let's drink. Or, our marriage should be unified through sexual intercourse, and children are a blessing, so let's copulate. Now, we can order these things out rationally, as anyone who's ever been on a weight loss program, a diabetes regimen, or fertility treatments knows, but typically we're alerted to the need because of a bodily sign or an appetite. Our appetites aren't simply just rational things. There's more to it. And the amazing thing is, in Jesus' case, is he really would have been able to turn the stones into bread. He could have done that if he had chosen to. Now, I think it's kind of grace to us that we oftentimes are not able to immediately satisfy whatever appetite we might have. I think the world would be a much more wretched place if we were able to immediately make anything happen that we really wanted. Jesus could have turned the stones to bread, but why didn't he? Why didn't he do it? Well, it would seem to me that Jesus probably certainly knew who his enemy was, and knowing that his enemy is crafty and deceitful, that the temptation was really more than about just a hunger in his stomach. It was more than just bread that Satan was getting at. Because if you look at verse 3, Satan prefaces the temptation with this little phrase, if you are the Son of God. So I would say on letter C, it's not just a question of appetite, but I would say this is also a question of, you could say it two different ways, of God's fatherhood 
or of Jesus' sonship. I think Satan was questioning if Jesus was really God's son. Because it could be implied in what Satan was offering, looking at Jesus saying, you know, it's clear that you're hungry. It's clear that you're in danger here in the desert. But it would seem to me, Satan may have been kind of implying, that all your father wants you to have is these rocks. What's he going to provide for you right now? Satan telling Jesus, it's up to you to provide for yourself in this moment. And that's what I think would have been happening if Jesus had done this. If he had turned the stones to bread, I think he would have been turning his back on his father's promise to provide for his own son. And so I would say that more than anything, let me not get ahead of myself before I get to the next blank. So if that was the heart of the temptation, questioning the appetite and who Jesus' father really was. I imagine that Jesus may have been taking a longer view of the situation. And I think this is instructive for us too. But while it would have been possible to satisfy his hunger in that moment, to turn the stones into bread, I think that Jesus may have been looking forward and seeing that there was coming a day, in fact, when there would be a great feast spread before him a wedding feast, Dan made reference to this in his sermon, prepared by his father, as Isaiah tells us, with rich food and aged wine. That would be a time to feast and be satisfied. But here with Satan in the desert, this was not a time to turn stones to bread and satisfy his hunger because more than anything, I think Jesus resisted because he knew whose he was. That is, he knew who his father was was. I don't think that Jesus resisted this temptation because of just sheer will, willpower being able to squash the hunger that was in his belly. I think it was far deeper than that, that he truly understood who his father was and that his father was not going to leave him to starve in the desert. And I think so it is with us. When we are faced the temptation of appetite. It could be food. It could be drink. It could be sex. It could be a job of some kind or a paycheck of some level. It can be a desire for good things, like a desire for a child. Whatever the appetite might be, I think we have to understand that we're not what we want. Not what we want. We must get a sense of who we are, first of all, apart from what we want. I think that our appetites are also given to us to show us something deeper. And that we have these desires, we have to eat, we have to sleep. At bottom, I think we're very feeble creatures. And I think what our appetites are really telling us is that we have needs that must be met we can't meet within ourselves. Isn't that right? Now God is very gracious to provide, I think, all of us in this room with far more than what we really need. He gives us a home. He gives us a job. He gives us clothes on our backs. He meets all of those needs, and we're grateful for that. 
He doesn't have to. Well, I think he has promised to do that. But more than that, not only does he provide us all of those things, he also has given us his son. And as much as we couldn't survive for very long without eating, I would say, and Russell Moore is arguing, that we can't survive, obviously, without Christ. If there hadn't been a provision of the gospel to save us from our sins, then we would be in very, very bad shape, in grave danger. Let me read what Moore writes about this in our appetites. To lose control of your appetites is to lose sight of the gospel itself. The truth that God knows what you need to survive. And this is what we need. We need the broken body and the spilled blood of Jesus. Now God allows his people to hunger so he can feed them with what is better than what they might otherwise choose. So for us to mortify sins of our appetite, we need to know whose we are. We belong to our Father. He has promised to meet our needs. And if we choose to go and try to provide something for ourselves apart from His will, then we're saying that we're really the ones providing for ourselves. We're really the ones meeting our needs. When the Scripture, I think, is clear that it's really God that has promised to meet our needs. That's temptation number one. Any questions about that one? Temptation number two. I'll read just verses five through seven. And then the devil took him to the holy city, and he had Jesus stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will give his angels charge concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now it could be that I'm just a nerd, but I wondered, well, how far was this drop really? How far was he really tempting Jesus to jump off? Like I said, you know? So whether you want to know or not, I'm going to tell you. Because, <laughs> well, I think it is interesting to, to think about what the context really was, geographically and architecturally. Um, I've never been to Jerusalem. Some of you all may have been to the Holy Land before. I've never been there. But from what I've learned, and even just the maps in the back of your Bible give some indication of this, is that Jerusalem sits up on a ridge, on a hill. Its elevation is more than 3,000 feet above sea level. And then it drops down abruptly all the way down to the Dead Sea, which is more than 1,000 feet below sea level. So there's some 4,000 feet difference and not a very long kind of um, horizontal distance. In Jesus' day, Jerusalem, of course, had a wall around the city. And the temple, where we're talking about here, was right at the edge of the city wall. So the city wall is here, the temple is here, and the city wall actually dropped down to the Valley of Kidron which then ro ro rises up a bit higher to the Mount of Olives. So from the bottom of the valley up the wall to where the temple is, the pinnacle of the temple, it would appear that that was a drop of about 450 feet, which is about the same, a little bit less than some of the high rises in downtown. 
So that's the height we're talking about. Think about being on the top of one of the towers downtown, looking over the edge, that kind of feeling in your stomach. That's what we're talking about. This is the height that Jesus is at. So Satan tells him, jump. And then he quotes from Psalm 91. And he quotes it well. He doesn't twist the words. He doesn't confuse what the text says. He simply quotes it. That he will give his angels charge concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up. Satan quoting to Jesus a promise that Jesus would be protected. Psalm 91 is all about God's promise to protect his anointed one. Now, in some ways, this to me seems fairly different from the stones and the bread. Because it would seem that while Jesus really was hungry and probably really would have wanted some bread, would, would he have really wanted to jump? Any one of us would have known that would be suicidal to jump from that height. We would not survive. But would Jesus have really wanted to do that? But look again what Satan says. Verse 6. He says the exact same thing that he said back in verse 3. If you are the Son of God. We're going to see a trend emerging this morning that Satan is coming at Jesus. Ultimately, all of these temptations, while they're different, they're all ultimately leading to the same question. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself off. And I think that if Jesus had done this, he may have been proving two things. On your notes, top of page 2, proving first of all that God's word was true. Because we have to believe that if he had jumped, the angels would have come and they would have protected him. They wouldn't have let him fall to his death. It would have proved that God's word was true. And secondly, it would have proved that God's word was true for Jesus in particular. And this, I think, is an important distinction. Because if you think about the temple, the temple courts, there could have been a great number of people in the temple courts that day. It could have been that they were looking up at the top of the pinnacle of the temple, and they may have seen two figures up at the top wondering, what is going on up there? I don't know if they could really see what was going on from down below. But if Jesus had chosen to jump, there could have been an audience to see it happen. And it could have proved right then when angels bear him up and protect him that Jesus really was the anointed one. It could have totally changed the direction of Jesus' life and ministry if all those people had seen him do this and seen that he was going to be saved. So it was true for Jesus in particular. God's word was true in particular for Jesus. And it could have offered, really, this is, I think, what Satan is getting at. It offered an immediate verification and a vindication. An immediate verification and vindication. Because I think what Satan was really trying to get Jesus to do was to lose faith in his father. He was wanting to get Jesus to force something that you can't see. The angels from sure were there, not visibly, always around Jesus to protect him. But he would have been forcing something invisible to become an immediate reality, visibly. A verification and vindication of who Jesus was. <coughs> Now, can the same temptation occur with us? 
none of us are ever going to be tempted, I hope, to jump off a building. But what underlies the temptation, I think, can happen for us. When we think about verification, what does that really mean? To verify what? I have three examples for you. I think that we might be tempted to have things verified in our initial salvation when we're first saved. What do I mean by that? It could be, and I think that perhaps our charismatic brethren are more prone to fall to this than maybe we are. But in someone's initial salvation, when they're first saved, people may be tempted to want to see some immediate, concrete result of their salvation. That's why I think we see people sometimes wanting to see some miracle occur, or whether it's speaking in tongues, or some just verifiable, show me some proof that I'm really saved. When in reality, we know that salvation is in the heart, right? And true, God tells us that there will be evidence when someone is saved. There will be fruit that we can see in their lives. But wanting God to prove in some concrete terms when someone is first saved, I think, is a temptation similar to this. Secondly, I think that we might be tempted to think this way if we want to have some concrete proof of God's existence. Some concrete proof of God's existence. could be that if any one of us have family or friends, we all have family and friends who are unsaved. And if we're willing to engage in conversation with them about Christ and share the gospel with those of us that we know and love who don't believe in Christ, I find myself sometimes wishing, I wish that there was just something that I could tell them that they just couldn't argue with. It's just kind of in their face, this is the truth, and there's no way you could say that I'm wrong. But God doesn't give us that, does he? We have to know that we live by faith and not by sight. So in our efforts sometimes to be a good apologist, sometimes we might be tempted to want some verified proof that God exists. Now, we may believe it in our heart and know it's entirely true and not have any wor worry about it, Sometimes I think we may wish that we could show that to somebody else when we really probably can't. Number three, another way we might want to be verified is to have some certainty that God will protect us. To have some certainty that God will protect us. And I think that this could find its way in where we make decisions about things just in day-to-day -day life. You know, should I quit this job? Should I take this job? Should we sell our house? Should we move to this city? Should we have another child? Should I serve in this ministry? All these questions that we're faced with, just things that we do as people, sometimes I think we'd like to have some sort of visible proof that God is going to make things okay before we make that choice to do that thing. Does that make sense? Before I step out in faith, God, show me that I'm stepping the right direction. When would that really be faith? No, that would be sight. That would not be faith. Um, so wanting certainty that God will protect us. It has to do also with safety and security, which Moore talks about. I'm 
reading quotes from him because he can say it a lot better than I can. When our ultimate goal becomes security and protection, God becomes a means to that security and protection. We test him then to see if he's able to serve as a means to our real God, which would be our sense that everything will be all right. As long as we see our way toward physical, emotional, financial, relational, or familial well-being, God is welcome. But when such things are threatened, we indict God with our grumbling, even when we carefully disguise this as a venting against our circumstances, not against God. We sometimes assume that God's love entails God's visible protection right now. When that is absent, we grow distant and prayerless toward God. We put him to the test. And that's exactly what Jesus told Satan. The word clearly says, don't put the Lord your God to the test. So how would this sin be mortified? How would this temptation to sin be mortified? I think it can be similar as the first, the stones and the bread. It could also have to do with taking a longer view than your immediate circumstance. Let me read from you. This is not in your notes. I'll read from you for you, First Peter chapter 2, because it occurs to me that there were probably other times in Jesus' life. Let me back up. That was verification. Now we're talking about vindication. What is vindication? What does vindication mean? It means to when you're some, someone is accused of doing something wrong, but then they're proven to be innocent, they've been vindicated, right? They've been proven to be in the right. That's vindication. It could have been vindication for Jesus to jump off the temple and prove who he was. But this probably was not the only time that Jesus would have been tempted to be vindicated. I'm sure we can all immediately think of another time in his life when he would have liked to have been vindicated. I'm going to read 1 Peter 2, 21 through 23. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Speaking of Jesus here, who committed no sin, nor was there any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. I'll stop there. Can you imagine what that was like? Probably none of us will really ever be before some sort of court of law accused wrongly of something. That might happen to us. I hope not. But for Jesus to be in that situation, accused of these things that he hadn't done, innocent, committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. He was being reviled, spit on, slapped, beaten. He uttered no threats. How strong would the temptation have been to cry out, I'm innocent. Why are you doing this to me? I think the temptation would have been strong. But what does it say? The rest of verse 23? Instead, this is what Jesus did. He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. In that situation where Jesus may have been tempted to be vindicated, instead, 
he kept entrusting himself to him, his father, who judges righteously. And we'll talk about us in just a moment, but when was it that Jesus would finally be vindicated? Not long from this occasion, there would be a stone that would roll away from a tomb, and a man who was previously dead was going to walk out alive. Anyone could have seen that he was vindicated. He was in the right. So how would this happen for us? How might we want to be vindicated? Well, I find sometimes it just happens in those, you know, stupid, selfish moments sometimes at the office when something goes wrong. You kind of want one of those I told you so moments. If only all listen to me, you know, we might not have found ourselves in this situation. Remember, I told y'all this was going to happen if we did this. And now, you know, you know what I mean? Kind of a time that you want selfishly in front of people usually is when this happens. It does no good to be vindicated by yourself alone. You want it to happen in front of other people. So that they'll see that you're right. I think that's what it is for me anyway sometimes. We want to be shown to be right. So what do we do? Colossians 3, 3 through 4. Paul writes this. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in his glory. think that in this case, like Jesus, who chose to wait to be vindicated, taking the long view, we have to do the same, knowing that when Christ appears, is revealed, then we also be revealed with him in his glory. The blank next to Colossians I wrote down, we have to wait for our and God's vindication. Jesus knew on top of the temple that day that was not the right time for him to prove who he was. He had to wait. Temptation number three. Verses eight through eleven. It says again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. In this case, Satan tries to cut a deal with Jesus. Tries to see see if he would just fall down and worship at Satan's feet. Satan would give to Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. I think it's interesting that it would appear at this point that Jesus has had enough. Be gone, Satan, is his immediate response. But what was at the heart of this temptation? 
You think, once again, you know, can you imagine, would Jesus have really wanted to jump off the temple? Would he have really wanted to bow down and worship Satan? I don't think that was really the lure here. That was the means, worshiping Satan on your notes, the means here to be worshiping Satan. But the end was what the temptation, I think, was really about, and that was the glory of all the kingdoms of the world the glory of all the kingdoms of the world. Now, was this an original idea that Satan had, that Jesus would be king over all the nations? No, that was not uh, Satan's idea. He didn't come up with this, that Jesus would be king of the nations and have their glory. It would have been planned from eternity past Jesus would be king. Wrong book. Let me read from Luke chapter 1. If if your notes say Luke chapter 3, I think that's wrong. It should be Luke 1, 31 through 33. This was when an angel appeared to Mary, his mother, And said, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. This angel making clear even before Jesus was born that he would one day be a king, in this case, over the house of Jacob, over Israel. So there's Jesus' kingship to happen someday, and then if we also turn back to the end of the story, to Revelation, we'll see that his kingship is even larger than just over Israel. Revelation eleven fifteen through 17. And the seventh angel sounded, and there arose loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord. You see that? The kingdom of the world... I think that's what Satan was really talking about. Has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who art and who wast, because thou hast taken thy great power and hast begun to reign. So there will come a day Paul tells us the same, that every knee would bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus will, in fact, be king over all the nations. But once again, I told you we'd see a trend. Whose timing was it going to be? Was it going to be on top of the mountain, a very high mountain with Satan? Was that the time for all the nations of the earth to bring glory to Jesus? I think Jesus knew that that was not the timing because he only ever did things according to the will of his Father, right? And just imagine, I don't want to speculate too much, but I wonder if from the top of that mountain, could they have still seen Jerusalem down there somewhere? And could Jesus also have seen outside the city wall, outside the camp, could he have seen from this mountain another hill far off in the distance, called Golgotha. 
where someday he would be there on a cross. And I think Jesus knew in this case that the road to Jesus having a crown would necessarily lead to a cross, right? See, worshiping Satan for Jesus would have been bad enough. But worse still, I think Jesus would have been usurping control from his father, taking what was not yet his to take. So, turning stones into bread, having angels protect you miraculously when you fall, kingdoms in their glory. Once again, in every case, I think, and this is what Moore is arguing, is that in all of these temptations, Satan is tempting Jesus to lose faith in his Father. In each case, there, I have a blank on your notes, Satan has been challenging Jesus to lose faith in his Father. That is, to decide that he needed to feed himself because his Father would not, that he would need to protect himself because his Father would not, and that he would need to perhaps glorify himself because his father would not. Now knowing what we know about Jesus, because we know a lot of his character, we know all the things that were written by the apostles about him, I think sometimes when we look at Jesus and these temptations, I think we look at them and we think, well, of course, Jesus was not going to fall for any of that. Because I think sometimes that we focus too much, perhaps, at least in this context, on the fact that Jesus was God, which is true. But I think we have to remind ourselves that in these temptations, these were real temptations for him, just like we have real temptations in our lives. And as Jesus was able to resist, we have to agree that so are we. That every challenge that Satan brings we challenge that our flesh within us brings, we are able to resist, but it has all to do, and this is the first thing we talked about, it has all to do with faith, I think. When we set our faith on Jesus for the killing of our sin, which is our first point, let me just briefly go back to Hebrews. This is not in your notes, this is Hebrews 11, starting in verse 24. Last week, I guess I kind of used Moses as a bad example, someone who didn't obey quite right. But here we are. We're going to see Moses vindicated right here. Hebrews 11, starting in verse 24. <clears throat> Moses. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God and to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater than the riches than the I'm sorry, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. And this is why, for he was looking forward to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured seeing him who is unseen. So here's a wonderful example that we have in Moses. And pretty amazing temptations that Moses had. All of the privileges that he could have had in Pharaoh's household. 
he decided that those were nothing compared to the riches of Christ. And the reason he could say that is because he saw him by faith. So if Satan was challenging Jesus in every case to lose faith in his father, then the answer to Satan's challenge in each case is simply this, is to place our faith in Christ, place our hope in the Word, and in the Spirit. Place our faith in Christ, and our hope in the Word, and in the Spirit. Because, no matter what our flesh would have us do, I think generally it all comes down to our pride. Our flesh is going to try to make us think that we can take care of ourselves, we can protect ourselves, that we know better what we know what's better for us than God does, and that we ought to receive praise. That's what our flesh would tell us. But I think if we really want to mortify our sin. Rather than being prideful about things, I think that we have to see ourselves as knowing nothing except Christ crucified, of being helpless except for the Spirit, of being nobody except for God's child, and really being hopeless except for the gospel. Let me finish with another quote. Or writes that you can go to hell believing Bible verses abstracted from Jesus. For instance, Psalm 24 says, Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, and does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. Perhaps the Pharisee that Jesus mentioned had this verse in mind when he stood in the temple right next to the repentant tax swindler. Thank you, God, that I can approach you with clean hands and a pure heart, he might have said. And his successors say it still, including some in the pews of some of our most faithful churches, and that attitude that we have clean hands and we have pure hearts, that attitude is damning more rights. Now, it's not damning because the psalm is untrue. It is true. It's damning because there's only one man with a pure heart and clean hands, only one who is the righteousness of God. Now, if I pretend to come to God apart from him, as though this text or any other applies to me outside of Christ, I'll only find condemnation. But hidden in Christ, this promise is my promise. When I cry out with the sinful tax collector, have mercy and find myself in Christ, then everything that God promised to Jesus also belongs to me. If anything, I found the study to be um, the most challenging because I had to be the one to say all of this, um, knowing full well the, uh, um, the battles that I have with my flesh and sin every day. But I hope that um, that it's been helpful for us the past several weeks. I hope that we've seen 
that there are ways that we can battle our sin and mortify sin and that God is faithful and that we must entirely trust in Him more than anything else, not trust in ourselves. I think that's all I have. Could I have, um, Drew, would you pray for us as we go?